Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Walter Lee. Walter is an assistant professor in the Department of Engineering Education at Virginia Tech. He also serves as both the assistant director for research in the Center for Enhancement of Engineering Diversity, or SEED, C-E-E-D, and leads the GUIDE Research Group, where GUIDE stands for Growing in Our Understanding of Inclusive Diversity in Engineering. Walter, welcome to Research Briefs, and I'm so pleased you're here today. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. To provide a bit of an introduction to listeners, can you briefly tell us about your pathway into engineering education research? So my path to engineering education was a little more direct than some other people in the field, where I was actually exposed to engineering education as an undergraduate student. So before I came to Virginia Tech, I was an undergraduate student at Clemson University, where I earned my bachelor's in industrial engineering and a minor in sociology. I gravitated to both of those fields, primarily due to my interest in people, but then also my, um, I would say, inclination to go towards spaces that also had math and science. So industrial engineering was a natural fit once I decided I wanted to do engineering, and then adding on the sociology minor was my way of adding a little more human elements to my undergraduate career than I was getting, particularly from engineering. And then in this time, I was exposed to an opportunity to complete undergraduate research with Julie Martin, who was in the engineering and science education department at the time, to complete a project looking at how first-generation college students and continuing-generation college students made the decision to major in engineering. And at that time, I realized that, oh, I can combine my interest in industrial engineering with the information I was learning in sociology and realized that it was a career. So I kind of found the field that way, and then decided that pursuing a PhD in engineering education made a lot of sense, particularly because I had the opportunity to pursue a master's in industrial and systems engineering along the way. And that's kind of what led me to Virginia Tech, where not only did they have a good PhD program, but also a a very highly ranked industrial systems and engineering department that I kind of saw as a way to continue learning industrial engineering, particularly human factors, but also pursue engineering education as a PhD. So one of the things I want to tell people here is to brag a little bit and to say that you and I are academically related and that your advisor, Holly Matasovich, uh, was one of my students. Um, So um, I'm I'm very pleased to be connected with you in that way. Um, Now, one of the questions I have, I have certainly heard of first-generation college students before because I, I am one of those person that whose parents didn't go to college. But I haven't heard the term before continuing generation college students. Can you say what those were? So at that time, we were using that to distinguish. So the non first generation college students, that was just the phrase that we used. Okay, okay. So it was the opposite of not 
of not being first generation, or the opposite of being first generation. Yeah. Uh, okay, great, great. So what you did for your dissertation is the thing that we are going to speak about today and the work that you've been continuing to do after your dissertation. You developed a model of co-curricular support that I know maybe we'll be using the acronym MCCS. I guess we've got to use a lot of acronyms, right? Um, And that model describes the intentions and the practices of engineering student support programs. Can you tell us about how you came to do this kind of research and then about how you built this model of co-curricular support? So my initial interest in co-curricular support started off with my curiosity about minority engineering programs are often called MEP offices. So while I was an undergraduate student at Clemson University, I was heavily involved in our MEP, which was called PEER, so Programs in Educational Enrichment and Retention. And that was initially what was my initial motivation to go into graduate school was I wanted to be a director of a similar center. So when I came to graduate school, my goal was to complete the PhD in engineering education and then go be an MEP director. And along the way, I kind of got a little more fascinated in what was going on. And that was primarily related to my exposure to the Center for the Enhancement of Engineering Diversity at Virginia Tech. So as a first year PhD student, I noticed that Clemson University had an MEP office, but then Virginia Tech had this office that while it did similar things, the focus was slightly different. So a lot of people are familiar with women engineering programs and minority engineering programs, but C did not solely focus on ethnic or racial minorities, are solely focused on women. So I began to get very curious about, one, what, how would I actually label C? Like, what was it? And then I also started having questions about what the difference was between these. So whether an MEP was simply the same thing as a woman engineering program, but focused on a different population, or whether there was something fundamentally different, whether there were more options or alternatives to offering these offices on campuses, because I couldn't find a lot of literature beyond just focused on minority engineering programs or women engineering programs. So that was kind of my initial attraction to this area to really figure out like, what are universities offering? How are they offering it? Why are they offering it? So because I couldn't find common language to refer to them, I started calling them engineering student support centers. So that was the label I used to refer to minority engineering programs, women engineering programs, and any office that similarly functioned as related to supporting undergraduate students, whether it was focused on diversity or not. And that was kind of where I started having these initial questions about, okay, what is the engineering student support center trying to accomplish and how does this slightly look different? And I was really curious about how universities were using them and what purpose they were serving and whether this varied across populations. So to move forward, to really get a general idea, I had to do some preliminary work to get a baseline understanding of one, how many of these things there were to see if it was worth pursuing and how designing a study might take fit. And in doing so, I realized that there were five different variations of these centers. So the traditional ones, so what I would call a minority engineering program and a woman engineering program, and then similar to the version at Virginia Tech, which I came to call a diversity engineering program. So a student support center focused on diversity, but not necessarily only focused on race and ethnicity or only focused on gender. I also noticed that there were some places where they had the MEP and the WEP offices combined, which I would call a woman and minority engineering program. And then there were some instances where people had these 
general engineering student support centers where they focused on student support in a similar manner, but they did not emphasize diversity. And I just started calling those general engineering support centers. So through that process, I started to notice that, okay, there are different approaches to this, although there aren't too many. So five different variations, and there might be some other ones that I did not stumble across. But then I also noticed that they were very common at a specific type of university, so a large public research intensive university, which basically are the large predominantly white institutions that have a lot of engineering students, which makes sense if you think about the context in which you might have a office specifically focused on supporting students from a subpopulation. And then that's kind of how I decided to focus on how large research one universities were using student support centers to support undergraduate students and looking across some of those differences to figure out, okay, what are the differences? What are the similarities? How are students talking about them differently? How are the administrators talking about them differently to really kind of wrap my head around what was happening in this space and kind of why and what they were trying to accomplish. And my initial interest as a researcher in really getting the handle on what they were trying to accomplish was noticing that oftentimes researchers will pick an outcome of interest. So whether that's our identity, our motivation, our retention, or something else, and then we have a tendency to study the impact something's having on the thing we chose. And I didn't feel like the literature or the theories that I saw were accurately reflecting everything that the student support students were doing. So I was real curious about if I can capture the operations of what they're doing and what they're trying to do, then I could kind of open the door to answer and ask a lot of questions about whether what they were doing made the most sense, which practices were the most effective. And a lot of that required me to one, really understand what they were doing, but then at the second time, have a good understanding of what outcomes they were trying to impact. So then I could kind of bring all that together to understand the whole picture in ways that I didn't see reflected in the current literature. So once I had that initial understanding, um, I moved forward with trying to figure out how to theoretically ground the investigation. So while I knew that there was not a theory that entirely captured the reality of student support centers, there was a lot of theories around student retention or student development, and those were things that I knew were at least solid starting points. So I ended up beginning with um, Tinto's model of institutional departure, which is a very popular way of conceptualizing the ways in which a student might decide to leave an institution or not. And I was real confident that student retention would be one of the outcomes. And the model also provided a way for me to un to conceptualize what I meant by the undergraduate experience. So in my research, one of the phenomenon I was trying to understand was how when student support center impacted the undergraduate experience. And what I needed from a theory was something that would help me put some bounds on what I meant by the undergraduate experience. And Tinsel's model was a good starting framework to provide that part to my study. And that was kind of the launching point from a theoretical perspective. So methodologically, I chose to focus on six student support centers across four institutions. So another pattern I noticed is that a lot of institutions that offer minority engineering programs also offer women engineering programs. So I was able to take advantage of that fact by going to some institutions and looking at the minority engineering program and the women engineering program. And I was able to do that at two institutions. And then at two additional institutions, I was able to find directors of diversity engineering programs that were also willing to participate in the study. And one of the reasons I chose two of each was this idea of literal rep replication versus theoretical replication as it relates to case studies. 
So with literal, literal replication, what you're trying to do is pick cases that you think will corroborate each other. So one of the assertions I began my dissertation with was that a minority engineering program will look similar to other minority engineering programs and a woman engineering program will look similar to other women engineering programs and diversity engineering programs will look similar to other diversity engineering programs. So in order for me to see if that was true, I needed to have multiple minority engineering programs. So if you only have one of something, it's very hard for you to see if that was actually what was causing the difference or if it's something else that you just didn't necessarily account for in your design. So that was kind of then the, how I got the little replication was picking two of each. And then the other form of replication was picking cases that I thought would be different, but kind of represent some theoretical conditions that I might be the same. So mm-hmm. I was able to have two of each where I could see if there were some similarities, but also investigate some of the differences. And that's kind of how I approached the sample size. And I also had to account for places where the directors of the student support centers were willing to work with me because my study involved interviewing the administrators. So people don't often open their doors and say, just come in, ask questions, poke around and talk about what we're doing. So some of my existing network and some of the relationships I had at Virginia Tech were important for me to be able to reach out to some directors and figure out who was open and willing and what made sense based on some of the trends I noticed before, as well as resources, because getting to these institutions was going to be not only time intensive, but resource intensive from a financial standpoint. I also looked at online documents. So a lot of them have web pages and some other documents that were available. Observations. So I did visit each university and I also surveyed students. So I needed um, gatekeepers who were willing to send out a survey to students and then also assist me with coordinating focus groups. So the process, I collected information about what they were doing from the administrative perspective, how they were advertising what they were doing, from surveying students to get a general understanding of where they felt like benefits were coming from, and then also having some focus groups to really understand why students were being involved or not being involved and some things of that nature. And then combined, I was able to modify Tensil's model to um, represent what I would say is a logic model that kind of outlines the inputs that student support centers are using, the outputs that they're trying to facilitate based on these inputs, and then also the impact that they're trying to have on students in a way that kind of brought in some of the logic model um, representation from program evaluation, but also a lot of the construct from Tintel's model and combined that resulted in the model of co-curricular support. So, one of the things that that I want to ask you about, and it actually it wasn't something we talked about in the pre-planning meeting, so I apologize for springing this on you. But as again, I was reviewing the publications that you've uh, been able to develop from your dissertation. They're very logically laid out of looking at the model, looking at the student experience, looking at the administrator's experience, looking at an instrument, then looking at metaphors. Were you, as you were creating your dissertation, did you think about it in that kind of way? Is that your industrial engineering mind seeing the process lying out or... Um, how did that happen? That's really a good model for other people, I think. So initially, I was only thinking about developing the model because my goal was to be a director and work with students. And my reasoning behind developing the model was 
one of the pieces of advice I got from the founding director of the MEPI at Clemson when thinking about a PhD, a question she asked me was if I was going to be the world's expert on a topic, what would that topic be? So because I wanted to be an MEP director, my initial reaction was, oh, the design and implementation of an MEP. So I was really moving forward under the idea that if I can really figure out what everybody's doing, if I get hired to run our start, our direct, our something in the MEP space, I would have the theoretical understanding of one, what my options were, because I had a good sense of what everybody was doing and why. But then also I could communicate it, I could evaluate it, I could do things with the student support center that other directors might not necessarily have been trained to. So that's kind of where I started. And then through the process, I started having other questions and through the collecting so much data. So that was one of the other things was because I collected so many interviews and focus groups and surveys, I was starting to notice trends across different parts of the data. So the first step was the focus group. So that part was in my dissertation. I just fleshed it out more in individual journal articles after the process after the dissertation was completed. So one piece was publishing the model in its entirety that lays out the MCCS. Another publication was looking at trends in how students talked about the benefits of participating in, as well as the negatives. So that was also one of the things I was wondering was whether students talked about the pros of a student support center varied across student support centers types, as well as the cons. So looking through the focus groups, I was able to kind of tease out some of those nuances to figure out, okay, what function is the student support center playing from a student perspective? Because the administrators might talk about it in a very different way than the students. So going that direction with the publication made sense. A publication came out looking at the information that administrators were using to make decisions. And that one was not planned and that analysis was completed after my dissertation. And that was through some work with Ben Lutz, who was a graduate student at the time here, where because I had all these um, interviews with administrators, one of the things that I pulled out that I did not use for my dissertation was any times they made like statements about beliefs, about either how something worked or how students operated or anything that kind of gave you insight to like the why they were making decisions or what information they were using. So we went through and coded that information to figure out if we could find the what we called like the building blocks of mental model. So we didn't piece together the whole mental model, but we might we pulled out like, oh, they're using information about how students make choices, or oh, they're using information about how students are impacted by this type of experience. And we kind of pieced those together to figure out different areas where knowledge might be needed. So one of the benefits about it, if you know that people use a certain type of information to make a decision, it can inspire you to do research that could inform that part of the decision-making process. So then that kind of led to another paper. Some of the measurements issues had to do with more so the reality that just because you develop a conceptual model doesn't mean it has a whole lot of explanatory power as it relates to this matters so much as it relates to this other thing. So once I have identified some constructs, I realized that until I could measure them, it would be very hard to figure out the extent to which certain types of experiences mattered for certain outcomes. And that naturally led me to seeing if I can measure 
student integration as it was operationalized in the model of co-curriculum support because previous researchers thought about student integration in a slightly different way. And then now I'm working on if I can measure support, which is a very interesting construct to try to wrap your head around. And that's kind of the space I'm at right now is figuring out is one, can we operationalize support? But then two, can we measure it once we've figured out kind of what constructs exist? And then once I can do those, then I can start answering interesting questions about the extent to which students are supported, the impact of them not being supported, are being supported in certain ways, whether there are certain subpopulations that seem to be getting support in one ways that other ones aren't. And then it kind of like opens the door to start asking a lot more complicated questions that you can't if you don't have these instruments. So the last uh, or the, the most recent thing I saw was in the, uh, I think the January issue, 2019 issue of... JEE, Journal of Engineering Education, where you have a guest editorial about metaphors. Um, how How did that come about? That came about from, so I'll take a step back. So I'm real fascinated with how the field approaches broadening participation. One part of that which I've spent a lot of time in is like how the field goes about trying to support underrepresented students. So that has resulted in the model of co-curricular support and all these other things where I'm really trying to get a handle on what the field is trying to do, why the field is trying to do it. So the second side of my interest in how the field approaches the conversation about broader participation is what people seem to think the problem is and how they communicate what they think the problem is and how they're kind of conceptualizing it on the front end. So the theoretical frameworks don't necessarily show up in the introductions in the same way that people's language use, their metaphor use, and other things kind of show up in the framing of the problem. So I would either notice people framing problems in ways that made sense for certain groups, but not other groups. So for example, if a researcher was specifically focusing on the experiences of Asian American students, but they leaned on the problem of underrepresentation and pipeline issues, there would be a disconnect between what they said the problem was and which group they chose to focus on. So throughout that process, I started to see, okay, there are some common arguments that people are using that allow certain underrepresented groups to join the conversation. And then there are other arguments that make it more logical to include other underrepresented groups. And then there are certain groups that are marginalized that have started to join the conversation that didn't necessarily rise to the level of being the primary interest based on certain metaphors and then paying attention to kind of, okay, how are these communities arguing for including themselves in the conversation as well? And then another thing I noticed was I would every once in a while hear people make comments about the use of certain metaphors. So a lot of people do not like pipeline Mm -hmm. as a metaphor to talk about the participation. And I couldn't figure out what the source of it was. So I was familiar with some of the critiques of it, but it wasn't something that I had fully fleshed out. So it was the combination of me having these thoughts and not necessarily fully fleshing them out and then stumbling across the book, Metaphors We Live By. And as I was reading that book, some of my frustration and lack of clarity started to become clear as I was exposed to this idea of a conceptual metaphor and seeing some of the examples, it finally clicked to me that pipelines, pathways, and ecosystems are conceptual metaphors about broader participation and people are like fundamentally thinking about the issue in a different way where in research, we talk about paradigms from a research perspective, but we hadn't necessarily brought that part of the conversation to how we're conceptualizing the problem. Mm -hmm. and how that is beneficial to certain groups and not for other groups. So 
that was kind of what motivated me to finally sit down and get all of the thoughts outside of my head to the point that I was like, okay, I can make sense of why the field's talking about it the way they are and also why it's frustrating at times, depending on kind of what the purpose of the conversation is, which group you're focusing on and which metaphors people are deciding to lean on as it relates to articulating what they think the issue is. Mm-hmm. In the podcast uh, with uh, Nikki Sahatska, um, she was talking about the stories the field tells. And I think that relates to this as well. Really, really interesting. The metaphors and language that's so embedded that we don't even, even realize it's there. And it's really interesting to uncover it, I think. Well, I want to go back a bit to building your framework um, because I really would like podcast listeners who want to build frameworks to have some idea of how this is done. So I want to take you back to figuring out that, that Tinto's uh, model would be a good starting point and maybe have you flesh out a little bit about what happened then to make it your model? How did that progress a bit? So it was one of those models that I kept coming across. So because it's a very general model, so it kind of basically says that students have these institutional experiences that lead to integration, which impacts their intentions and goals, and then ultimately they decide whether they're going to stay or leave. So if you're looking for a model that provides flexibility and focuses on student retention, it was a very natural starting point, particularly since a lot of other researchers used it. Mm -hmm. So it was very easy to kind of start in that place. And then another thing that the model is that that it does very well is if you're trying to say, okay, institutional experiences, is it acknowledges the fact that there's this academic system and this social system and then says, okay, there are things related to academic performance faculty and staff interactions, extracurricular activities, peer group interactions. And I was, okay, that's a good starting point because it resonated with the categories that were in the literature. So those four categories provided a very organized way for me to review literature as it related to supporting undergraduate students and to kind of compartmentalize it based on which part of the institutional experience it was primarily focused on. So I did not use the entire model. So when I started my study, once I realized that, okay, I can take the pieces of the model that make the most sense, I really zoned in on the ways Tinto operationalized institutional experience and then the process by which positive experiences kind of led to certain outcomes. So what he called the departure decision provided a way to say, okay, well, there is positive experiences, some integration influence on goals and commitments and stuff happens, and then this output is input, this outcome is impacted. So I started there, and through the process, I could see whenever something was beyond the institutional experiences that Tinto outlined, and I could also see if there were outcomes beyond that, but it provided a good starting point. So through that process, one of the things I noticed was that when you're thinking about student retention at the university level, there are certain forms of integration that are not necessarily prominent and don't come to the surface. So as soon as I started collecting data, I realized very quickly that there's this professional component that comes to play once you zoom in on a college that you don't see if you're talking about at the university level. So I immediately realized that, oh, there are these professional development experiences and there's this thing that I call professional 
professional integration that is different than academic integration and social integration. And then also once I came to look at it from the college perspective, I also had to acknowledge the fact that the college was situated within the larger university. So then there was also this thing of university integration. So within the College of Engineering, in addition to you wanting them to integrate into the academic and social system and the professional discipline that you're talking about, you also have to help them integrate into the university in which your college is situated. So I was able to add those constructs. And then so I also decided to remove the the student attributes that Tintel accounts for to ensure and I made that choice to ensure that the model I developed would have to focus on the university. So instead of me thinking about the background of the student, I replaced it with the inputs and investments that the university is making. So that's when I included, okay, there are programs, activities, and services that universities offer. And I'm going to put that as the starting point as opposed to who the student is to make it clear that this model is focused on um, investigating the environment as opposed to the student themselves. And then through the process, I expanded the outcome. So I changed the departure decision, I changed the decision to depart to degree progress. And then I also added in academic achievement and career attainment. So that was another thing I noticed is even though student retention is often the focus, which makes sense if you're thinking about it from a university level, when you look at it from a academic college level, you have to suddenly become interested in, are they progressing towards a degree? Are they making good grades? And are they actually getting jobs? So those three outcomes came to the surface because I started talking to people who were coming at it from a disciplinary perspective as opposed to just focused on the institution. So through that process, I was able to identify places where parts of Tintel's model needed to be either removed or places where I added constructs. And if you look in the paper, you can kind of see where I kept something versus where I added something versus where I removed something. And that was kind of at, at a certain point where the foundation of it is definitely still Tintel's model, but it, it has been changed significantly to the point where the outcomes of interest are different, the driving factors are different, the context in which it's intended to be used are different, where there are some similarities, but at that, I got to a certain point where I feel like I made it enough additions to it that it was something different than it started off. Mm-hmm. So how have uh, people reacted to your work so far? I know that you're still a fairly new academic, but um, could you say both from the standpoint of re- researchers and also people who direct engineering student support centers, uh, what the reaction has been? So I had the opportunity to lead a workshop for the National Association of Multicultural Engineering Program Advocates, or NAMIPA, and that's a community of primarily MEP directors, but there are also some other administrators and educators who I would say work very heavily with underrepresented ethnic and racial students, or students from underrepresented ethnic and racial groups. And with that community, it has been well received. It's resonated with its members. So but as a reminder, so because my goal was to just accurately capture what they were doing, like no surprises from that community was a good thing. Like I wanted them to see it and say, yes, you have captured what it is we're doing, why we're doing it and what we're trying to accomplish. And that was kind of the general reaction I got from that community. So that's, that's kind of that's kind of like face validity, really, right? Of yours, of your your model. Yeah. So that's a community that I constantly try to go back to with the results because 
I kind of view them as because they work with students a lot, I feel like they have a lot of knowledge that was not currently captured in literature. So one of the things I'm trying to do is constantly work with them to kind of document some of the knowledge they have in their head because they work with students in a very different way than a lot of other administrators do, or a lot of people who might be focusing on in-class experiences. So that community, I think, has received the work well, and they've always been very receptive. So sometimes I'm one of the few researchers that are in that space. And it is one of the things where they have always welcomed me and they're always generally curious. It's I've tried to make it a mutually beneficial relationship and I continue to work with that community. From the researcher standpoint, I think there has been interest. So some people have started to use the model primarily at this point, I think a lot of people see it as a way to start categorizing things. So if they're looking at student support centers and they didn't, and they might not necessarily know, have the language to explain how it's structured, the model provides a lot of language to say, okay, these are the things that are present, these are things that are not. And if something's missing, because I've documented a lot of stuff, it also provides a useful way to know what's not there if you aren't super familiar with the space. And I think that the field is still not 100% sure what to use the model for. So I think it's because I'm still in the developmental phases. I don't, a lot of people have not been using it and I don't think that will come for a little while, but I have seen some researchers, researchers use it. I've seen it used in conference papers, a PhD student at Purdue also using it in her dissertation. So I was added to her dissertation committee. And then, so I've slowly seen some people starting to use it. I know people are aware of it, but I think that more people will use it as we flesh out some of these um, instruments and some of the constructs where I think once we can really operationalize student support, I think it'll open up a whole lot of research questions that people aren't necessarily thinking about right now. So I'm hoping that in the future, more and more people will start trying to build on it and test some of the assertions I'm making, see if they either agree or disagree to really kind of start engaging in it from a very critical standpoint where I think right now people are using it to provide structure in certain places where they might not necessarily have the structure currently. But I think hopefully moving forward, it'll start being used similar to how Tintel's model was. So that's kind of the goal is to right. get right. to the point that it is a very useful way to think about how colleges of engineering are supporting undergraduate students, particularly underrepresented students. And then people can start asking all kinds of questions and start moving that conversation forward. Right, right. It's it's often until you really can start to measure things that make make it more applicable. So, um, again, I really commend you for thinking about this in steps of first realizing you've got to describe what's out there and then figure out how to measure it. Well, the final question that I always ask is one I'm going to ask you, and that is, what advice would you have for people who are creating new frameworks or wanting to modify frameworks using different methods, um, what advice do you have? So three things come to mind. So I tend to think about researchers in three different buckets. So there's like the problem context part, there's the theoretical conceptualization part, and then you have the method part. And I think it's useful to think about each of them in isolation at times to really think about the implications they might have for your ability to move forward. So regarding problems, my advice would be to always have an audience in mind. So that is one of the things that probably adds to some of the structure that you notice across my readings is that there's a very specific community that I'm usually writing to. 
which means that I'm usually trying to write something that adds to the current conversation as it relates to that community. So I think if you can figure out who your scholarship is intended to serve, I think that will make it very easy for you to identify new lines of inquiry and think about questions that might not necessarily be surfacing in the literature, but they might if you have that community in mind and you talk to them. So in my instance, the student support centers are the usually the community that is front and center in my mind. And I'm constantly thinking about ways in which I can do something that is of value to that community. And I have found that to be very useful as it relates to identifying new problems or new context in which to add some questions. From a theoretical perspective, and this applies to methods as well, it rem um, I'm reminded of the saying that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So my advice would be to read broadly as possible across different social scientists so that you can find more tools. So one of the things that I've noticed is the more theories I'm familiar with, the more questions I come up with. So through a lot of my collaborations, I've been exposed to organization theories from working with David Knight. Alex Coso strong has exposed me to transition theory. And with each of those, I've started to ask very interesting questions about the undergraduate experience as related to student support that I was not previously asking because I didn't have a lens that made the constructs kind of at the front of my mind. So it was one of the things where if you can think about it as if you can pick up lenses, you can start seeing things related to the problems that you hadn't seen before. Reading in other spaces to figure out, okay, how are people operationalizing and conceptualizing these issues? The more you can, the more tools you can add, the more you're able to see problems and you can start asking some very creative questions. From a method standpoint, um, my advice would be once you've identified a question, is don't be afraid to ask other people how they might go about answering it. And collaboration is key. So one of the best pieces of advice I got from, it was a professional development event of some sort targeting new faculty, was that because the tenure clock is so quick that you don't really have time to develop new skills from a method standpoint. So if I have a question that requires a quantitative analysis skill that I do not have, it would be better for me to find someone who already has the skill than for me to spend time trying to develop the skill. So while you're a graduate student or maybe on the other side of tenure, you might have a little more luxury to develop new skills and learn new theories. Where right now my approach has really been to, if I can really figure out the problem and have a good understanding of what I might need, I can establish partnerships where someone else might already be very familiar with the theory and they can get me up to speed and I'll come to become very knowledgeable with it, but I might not necessarily start off there. And I can kind of learn as we're making progress. And then I can also bring people in from a method standpoint to bring their strengths and I'm gonna, by collaborating, I'm gonna learn, but it doesn't necessarily, progress doesn't rely on my learning. I can learn as we make progress. And I have found thinking about my collaborations in that way enables me to one, pursue research areas where I might have a good understanding of why the research is needed. And I might have a good understanding of how we can potentially frame it. I can find partners who can move it forward without necessarily shying away from those lines of increase because I don't have the training. And a lot of that has been because I have found very good people who are willing to go down the paths that I'm interested in as it relates to serving the community that I'm interested in and also have very useful theories that they want to bring, our methods that they're willing to bring, and then I have found that those collaborations have been probably the most useful as it relates to exploring new approaches because we don't have the luxury to just explore 
in the absence of progress. So I think if you can form collaborations that make the exploration a natural part of moving forward by getting partners who have something that you want, that you can learn from, but you can also contribute, I have found that to be a very positive approach to forming research partnerships, thinking about research practice partnerships, like really kind of thinking about, okay, what are the pieces that I'm going to bring to the project and kind of where can I find the other pieces from other people until I can kind of develop those skills. And then also paying attention during the collaborations because sometimes people can have a tendency to let the other PI work on certain parts and you might not be paying attention or not be paying as much attention. You can kind of like blindly trust people, but if you pay attention to what people are doing and really kind of engage in the process and ask them questions, at the same time, you can kind of develop those new approaches and identify those new theories through that process of collaboration in ways that I think will, one, benefit the current project you're thinking about, but also provide you with new lenses and tools that when you leave that project, you can kind of move forward with more and more questions. Right. Yeah. Thinking together is very fun and uh, really a good, good approach. Walter, I think that's great advice. You're a shining example of uh, a new member of our field, and I am very pleased you were here today and very pleased to be part of your academic family. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is probably the, it's always nice to talk about your work. So it was definitely a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you very much. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.